Um, <clears throat> if you would, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, so I'm going to open in prayer, but you're also going to pray. And so if, just, just repeat this prayer. Uh, and, and, l- and let me just say this, that we prayed for the preaching of the gospel just a few moments ago. Uh, and, and there's really a couple parts to it. Uh, there is the preaching, the, the part where uh, the, the man that God has called preaches and, and proclaims gospel truth. But there's just as, as important for you and for me is the hearing of the word, the receiving of gospel truth. Um, and so we know as, as a church, uh, the, God, the, the scriptures tell us that Except that the Spirit of God open our ears and our hearts to the truth of his gospel, that we cannot receive it. We can't understand it. We can't make sense of it. It's foolishness. It's, it's stupidity. Uh, and, and, and our hearts are hardened to it. And so we are going to pray together um, that the Spirit of God would move in us this morning and that we would hear his truth. So, so just... Uh, Pray with me, and I'll, I'll pray, and then repeat after me. Uh, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me this morning. Open my eyes. Open my ears. Light my heart. Speak by the power of your word. Show me Christ this morning and allow my heart to turn to him. Thank you for the cross. Amen. All right, let's get started. We're in Deuteronomy 4 today. Uh, Brad is... uh, was unable to be here this morning. He's been sick. You've probably heard that a couple times. Uh, keep him in your prayers this week. Pray that, that God would just restore him, that he'd be able to be with us uh, next week, and, and that we'd be able to continue in Genesis. That being said, the things that we're talking about are not disconnected from Genesis. Uh, we believe about the Bible that it is one work. 66 books, it's got different genres, different authors. It was written over many millennia, or at least a few. Um, and, and we trust, nonetheless, that with all of its diversity, that it's unified and that it speaks truth. And so when we preach from Genesis, or, or Revelation, or the Gospels, or Deuteronomy, or Chronicles... It's God's word, and it's gospel truth, and it's Jesus being proclaimed. Uh, and so, so this is connected, all right? And, and, uh, and you'll see maybe a little bit more particularly how. But we're going to be in, Genesis, or in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, before we get there, uh, John, John Piper, he's a pastor and author out of Minneapolis, if, if you haven't heard of him. Um, uh, he said in, in one of his sermons that one of the most sinister effects of the fall is that we forget. 
we forget. And, 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 and you, you know it's true. Uh, not only do we forget things, you know, the, the older you get, the more you have to forget. And, and so, uh, so we all experience that. And, and it's amazing. We, we've got a five-year-old daughter who will be six very soon. And her recall is very good, especially when we said we were going to do something good for her. Right, and, and ours went, you said you'd get ice cream, and I don't remember saying that. Oh, I remember. <laughs> you know, it happened on the 19th hour of the 15th day of June. Um, and so, but, but our recall, it, it wanes. Uh, and, 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 and so, we are left forced to set up for ourselves reminders. Uh, and God knows this. God understands that one of the things about the fall is that we forget. Uh, another thing about the fall is that, th- that, that beauty and wonder and splendor fade. And that's a sort of forgetfulness as well. We forget the mystery of, of a sunrise. Because we just know it, we see it, it's coming, the sun will rise. This is a scientific fact. And so it's not wonderful to us. If you go, for example, to the beach or the mountains, whichever you prefer, uh, you go to your favorite spot. Let's let's say the the beach, though. And that, that first morning, you look out and you wake up and you go out to the beach and you're like, we're going to watch the sunrise. And you watch it and you're like, man, this is amazing. It's so beautiful. You're still at the beach the next morning. Maybe, maybe you'll go out and see it. You know, you're not setting your alarm. So you get up, you go see it. Man, it's beautiful. By the third morning, you're like, dude, I just want to sleep. I, have, I, I, I don't care. Like, it's the same beauty. It's the same majesty. It's just become familiar. We've forgotten its splendor. We've forgotten the glory of a sunrise. We forget... Man, as a kid, I remember going to sleep was actually really difficult because I was just, the dark was scary to me. It was. And, and in a sense, it was, I wasn't like some crazy philosophical kid, but like, in a sense, it was because death is scary. And there was, for me, this notion that if I went to the dark and I went to sleep, that maybe I wouldn't reappear again, whatever that was. Uh, and, and I think that we tend to forget things like that, too. We've, we forget not only the splendor of the universe, um, but also the frailty of life. And of all things, and we're, we're jarred sometimes into remembrance of that. But for the most part, uh, as a culture, even, we actively seek to forget. We actively seek it. We push death and, and, and pain and suffering as far away from us as we can so that we'll forget. And we do a good job of forgetting. And in the meantime, we consume our lives with the most inane, foolish forms of entertainment that we can find. I mean, seriously, I spend hours, hours lining up my fantasy football league team 
and then sitting in front of a TV watching grown men, grown men who are getting paid millions of dollars with the objective of carrying a ball across a line. I mean, and, and people get heated over this too. I'm one of those people. <laughs> but, I, but I love watching football. You know why? Because when I'm watching football, I don't have to think about important things. You know, I love a good movie. Don't get me wrong. You want to watch Avengers or whatever movie is coming out next? Have fun. Just remember that that two and a half hour period of time in your life was spent watching an imaginary character fly around and shoot imaginary aliens um, and that it's fun and that maybe we learn a little bit about humanity and we can tell ourselves that. Um, But it's a good way, it's a pastime, it's a good way to escape the reality that every second that passes, something is inching closer. We forget. We lose sight of the glory and the beauty of things. And it is deadly. It's catastrophic. And God knows that. And so this text that we're going to read, uh, it's about a lot of things. It's about who God is. It's about how we ought to live as his people. But it's about a God who is urging us, calling us to remembrance. So let's turn to Deuteronomy 6. We're going to start in verse 4. Uh, verses one, and, 1 through 3 are important too, but um, we're going to start in verse 4. Uh, essentially what God is saying through uh, Moses is that I saved you. Uh, you weren't my people, I made you a people. Like in 1 Peter 2, 10, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you didn't have mercy, but now you've received mercy. God says that a lot. He's saying it here. You were enslaved and I freed you. I said I would be your God long before you were born. I said you would be my people generations before you drew a breath. So here, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And right away, he begins to tell us a bit about who he is. First of all, he's the Lord. He's the king of all things. And he's our God. He's not just the Lord God, which he is, but he is the Lord your God. He chooses to identify himself in relation to you. He's not some far off God. He's your God, which means you're his people. The Lord is our God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's one. He's unified. In, and, and when we begin to talk about the Trinity, you know, and, and we're not talking about the Trinity. Now this is an aside. But when you talk about the Trinity and when you think about the complexities of God and Father, Son, and Spirit, and all of those things, we have to read them in light of this truth, that God is one. He's unified in, in purpose. He is the same as he has always been. He is one. He is the only. You could actually translate the Lord 
our God, the Lord, is the one, the only, the only God. And this is going to come into play later in the text. But this is who Yahweh is. Yahweh is your God. He is the same all the time. He is unified in mission and thought. And he is the only one who is God. The only one worthy of any sort of worship, praise, ultimate adoration. And so then he continues, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's a commandment, right? And and we know this because the Pharisees asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And they're trying to stump him. Uh, It's just what they do. And Jesus doesn't come with honor the Sabbath and keep it holy or don't steal or don't do, you know, like he says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. You are to love God. Last week, if you were in home group or the week before, one of the questions that you had to discuss was, what is it that the Lord requires of us? And, and you spent some time in the Old Testament. And whenever you're in the Old Testament looking at the commands of God, there's always this question about, well, which ones are we supposed to keep? Which ones aren't we? And, and there's a rule of, th- you know, moral versus, versus uh, ceremonial law versus cleanliness law or whatever. Here's, here's a very easy one. If Jesus tells us to do it in the New Testament, that's definitely one you should do. And so Jesus repeats this, love God with everything. And so this is what we're called to do, but you guys know that we don't do this, right? You know, when, when, when Tony Romo is throwing another interception at a critical moment in a game, as a Cowboys fan, um, my fury supersedes my love for God. In that moment, I love victory and the Cowboys more than I love God. And so I say things about Tony that I don't really mean. And I'm sorry, you know, but um, look where you throw the ball. That's all. Um, But we don't do that. We don't love God with everything we have at all times. You know, the, the easiest way when somebody asks, am I a sinner? You know, is to say, well, Do you love God with everything you have at every point in time? And if the answer is yes, then, well, no, you might well be perfect. But if the answer is no, and if you're honest, it has to be no. Well, then you're in trouble. Because this is the first and great commandment. It's to love the Lord your God with everything that you have. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. All right, and so here, here's what's been set up, just, just as we get into really where I want to sit and spend the majority of the time this morning. Uh, God loves his people. And before they were born, he called them, right? And so for the Israelites, he chose them when he promised to Abraham that I would make you a father of many nations, but 
a great nation, and particularly that I would bless the world through your offspring. He was thinking and speaking of Jesus, who was of Israel, and God covenanted with Israel before they were born. But that's really just a picture of what God has done with us uh, before he laid even one foundational stone in the earth and in the universe, God promised, he chose his people, he promised that he would love us and that he would be our God and that we would be his people. And then Adam and Eve sinned and this this sin, this disharmony with God, this disobedience, this disbelief in God, this exchanging of the truth of God for the lie of the serpent, uh, it's now transmitted to, to all people. It, you're born with it. Scripture says you're dead in your trespasses and sin, that you, in, you inherit the sin of Adam, um, that, that sin enters the world through one man, Adam, and is in the world. The Bible tells us that we are born sinful, and that as soon as we are able, we comply with that sin. We are complicit in it. So that no one can say, I have an excuse. And it's so brilliant in scripture and so dreadful that in, in, in Romans, Paul tells us that even if we don't know the law of the Lord, like even if you are one of those, and this, this question always comes up, what about those people in the jungles of wherevers? Um, what about them? They didn't even have the Bible. Well, what the Bible tells us is that there's a law that's written on their heart. And it might not be the Ten Commandments. It might not be as specific in naming God as Yahweh and Jesus as God. But there's a law written in each of our own hearts. A moral code. And even our own moral code, we don't live up to. So you don't need the Old Testament to know that, man, you're not what you're supposed to be. Nobody's perfect is not a, a, a phrase that can only come out of a Christian worldview. You know and you have expectations for what a person should be like, and there are times when you don't meet them. When you lie to someone, you don't need Scripture to tell you that it's bad. It does. And for some people, some people they don't realize that something is sin until Scripture names it. But all of us betray the own law and, and moral code that we have in our hearts. So we are guilty. However, that guilt is akin to, it is like the Israelites in bondage to Egypt. And so we're in Deuteronomy Right, And so this is, God has already sent Moses, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pillar of smoke, fire, Red Sea, parted, walking in the wilderness. God has freed them from slavery. And so here we, we find ourselves in the same place where God promised he would be our God. We rejected him, found ourselves in slavery. He, out of his great grace and mercy, did something that we were unable to do ourselves, and that is free us from the bondage of sin. So if you trust in Jesus, you've been freed from the bondage of sin in your life. And he's telling you how to live. 
And the thing is that God knows the truth that we spoke about earlier. You will forget. You will forget. And so here in Deuteronomy 6, God begins to say some things, give some commands to Israel that look like, here's how you remember. It's why we preach the gospel every Sunday. Because every week we forget. Every morning we forget. And we have to remind ourselves of the gospel And so God says to his people, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So let me just say, the first way to remember the promises and the truth and the goodness of God and who you are in God is to always be saturated with the gospel. Every day, remind yourselves of the truth of the gospel. Remind yourself of the truths of God's love for you. This idea of writing them on your door frames and writing them on your house and writing them on your arms, it's so that people always see it. Everywhere you go, you see the truths of the promises and the commands of God. And some of us don't even saturate ourselves with the gospel on a daily basis, let alone an all the time basis, a daily basis. Some of you will not, won't even look at the scriptures apart from this morning. And the question is, how between work and between entertainment and between your family and between the bills that you have to pay and the worries of the world, how will you remember the truths of God if you are not sitting in them every day? The answer is you won't. And God knows this, and so he tells his people, be saturated in scripture. Be saturated in my words. Remember. And then also in there, this is interesting because this is for the people, but it's also for their children. And as Protestants, we don't really talk about that that much, especially as as Anabaptists, as rebaptizers, um, as Baptists, essentially. We don't talk about it that much. Uh, but if you recall, the, the covenant God said to Abram was to him and his children and his children's children, and it's for generations. And Paul even repeats that, in, or Peter repeats that in Acts, that this promise is for you and your children and your children's children. And so God tells the people of Israel to teach these things to your children, teach them diligently these truths. And there's sort of a twofold reason for that. The first is that as parents, you have an obligation. You have an obligation as, as 
lovers of Jesus first and parents second to disciple your children. Fathers, you have to pastor your families. And, and, and that is discipling your children, rearing them up in the word of truth. This will not change necessarily their actions. Like this will not promise any sort of like great lineage. Your child may still turn away from the Lord. However, you are to be obedient and faithful in proclaiming the gospel to your kids. And you do that in a number of ways. Read scripture with them. Look, if you don't have a Jesus Storybook Bible, that's fine. Read, read, the, read the Bible with them. But if, if, the, if, if like our version of the Bible, if it's too heavy for them or too much or they're not rolling with it, look, scripture is stories and the Jesus Storybook Bible captures that so well. And I know it seems like weird product placement, but I, I, I highly endorse it. Look, if you want to get some other children's Bible, that's fine. But the Jesus Storybook Bible, sort of the brilliance of it is that every story ends tying it to what Jesus is going to do, right? So we're not just getting the story of Abram carrying up Isaac on the hill about to sacrifice him, and then at the end say, so be good little boys and be willing to sacrifice everything for God. No, it ends saying that one day God's son would carry wood on his back up a hill, and he would die for us. This story is about Jesus, and the Jesus Storybook Bible helps your kids to see that. But read the Bible with your kids. Pray with your kids. Pray with them. And this is a big one. Uh, The other two are huge. This is also big. Demonstrate grace over moralism any chance you can. Be gracious to your kids. Reflect to them. Show them the grace of God. Remind them. This doesn't mean don't discipline your kids. God is gracious and he chastises his people. But remind them that their value, their worth, your love for them is not rooted in what they do and don't do, how they do and don't behave, but rather just in the fact that you are their father or you are their mother. As a believer, that will shift your life when you realize that your relationship with God is not determined by what you do and don't do, but by who God is and what he has done in Christ. And so as parents, you can model that. When you discipline your kids, and and, and there's no formula for it, but consider something like this. Consider saying, as opposed to, don't do that it makes me mad. What are you thinking? You are embarrassed. Instead of, don't say, think about something more along the lines of this. Look, you're my son. You bear my name. I'm your father. I love you. And that's why you cannot live like this. You cannot act like this. You cannot do these things. Because you're mine. And as my child, you don't act like that. Always make sure that the indicatives of who they are proceed, come before, lead into the imperatives of what you have called them and what God is calling them to do. Show grace to your children. And, and that is so that they learn the gospel, but here's the thing is that, and, and, and parents, you, you know this, and, and the older you get, you know this. As you teach your kids the gospel, it 
it roots itself in you. For me, the 45 minutes to hour and a half that I'm up here, um, that's a joke, it's not going to be an hour and a half. Uh, I, I won't say it's the least benefit, this is such a weird thing to say, but, but for me, this is just sort of like, just like, okay, I've spent all this time studying, here you go. Like, this is what I've got. This is how the Lord's moved me. I, I, I love you. Brad loves you. David, when he's preaching, we love you. And so we think about who you are and where you are, and we think about who we are and where we are, and we just go to Scripture, and we, we sort of just beg God to, to, to show us, not just sort of the depths of Scripture, but, but why this is so important for us as a people and how we as a community ought to respond to that. And so this is just, this is the easy part but for me, the transformational part is, is Monday through Friday, Monday through Sunday, or Saturday, where, where I'm in the Word, and I'm digging through, and I'm, I'm praying, honestly, and unfortunately, more than I typically do when I'm reading Scripture. I'm praying, and I'm seeking God, and God is changing me. And so as I preach that week, usually God is just beating me over the head with this truth. And so a lot of times I just preach what God has just been punching me in the gut with all week and hope that maybe it'll punch some of you in the gut too. Um, But that's how it works. And so if you're a parent, when you teach your kids, they ask questions and you have to figure them out. And then it roots itself deeper in you. If you don't have kids, there's still a principle here. Make disciples. If you are God's child, if you are a disciple of Jesus, that means you're making disciples. You may not be like Billy Graham evangelist. You may not be a pastor preaching. But you have someone that God has put in your life for the specific specific purpose of discipling. Guiding and walking with them, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded both of you. And as you make disciples, this crazy thing begins to happen. You begin to see more of who Jesus is because, get this, you are acting more like Jesus. Like the the big thing, apart from dying on the cross, that Jesus did during his life was make disciples. He the first thing he does in his ministry is choose disciples and then walks with them. Which means that if you want to be like Jesus, you have to make disciples. There's no other way around it. I mean, some of you are old enough to remember the the Be Like Mike commercials, right? I'm not going to sing the song, although I could, word for word, still. Um, but the idea was Michael Jordan was it. He was it. And, and if there was any sports figure at that time that you want to be like, it's Be Like Mike. Well, if you don't play basketball, you can't be like Mike. That's what he did. Right? Like you could wear goofy clothes, uh, but you're still not like Michael Jordan. Look it up. He wore goofy clothes. Still does. Uh, you, you could go to Carolina even. But you're not like Mike. Likewise, you can wear t-shirts with slogans or put a fish on the back of your car. Listen only to um, the local Christian radio station. 
And, uh, and if you're not making disciples, you're not being like Jesus. And so parents, you have the built-in disciples, right? <laughs> That's built-in right away. Like you, have, you know now, oh, who am I supposed to make disciples of? Well, at least these people, right? So for the rest of you, make disciples. All of you, make disciples is what we're called to do. And I promise you, as you do that, as you act like Jesus in that, you will grow in him. So those are the first two ways. Moving on. And the Lord, and when, this is great, um, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers to give Abram, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all, all full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All right, and so for us, we're on the other side of this. If you recall, these people are still in the wilderness. Deuteronomy, they're still in the wilderness. Joshua, they're getting into the promised land. They got work to do. Deuteronomy, still in the wilderness. And God is saying, very soon, I'm going to bring you into the land that I promised. I've removed you from slavery. I'm going to bring you into the land. And when you get there and when you reap the blessings of my grace, do not forget me. And he says it in such a way that you cannot take out anything from it except that every good thing that we have comes directly from God. When you live in the city whose foundations you didn't lay, when you're drinking that, that milk from cows that you didn't milk, like, and, and for us as Americans, this, is, this should be easier to understand because we have very little input in the process of the things that we consume anymore. You know, some of you have chickens and grow stuff and more power to you. But most of us, and I shouldn't say more power to you because it's very important and I wish we could except for the chickens thing. Um, But most of us, and most of you, everything that you consume has been through a process that you typically, or that we as Americans typically know very little about. I could go on about that, but I'm not going to. But the point is, we understand, look, all of us, for the most part, live in houses we didn't build. I live in a house that Steven Eisenberg built. So that's close. That's about it. You know, we, we, we experience all these benefits of things that, and, and, and that we didn't have any part in. And yet, we love to talk about, like, you have to earn everything. Like, we love to talk about it. And we, we love to think about things in the sense that, like, if you don't do this, then you didn't earn it or you don't deserve it. Well, none of us deserve anything that we have. Like, there, there's some things that God has given us to do and we've done them and praise God for that. But they are still founded upon things that we had no control over. That you were born to your parents, you had no control over. God chose that. And that's the first in a long series of actions that have brought you where you are. And so we still, even in a country where we just buy things, like, I don't know what's in half of the stuff that I eat when I eat at restaurants. I don't know how it got there. I just reap the benefits of it. And what God is saying is when you go to this place and you reap all the benefits of the things that you didn't actually work for, 
Don't forget. Take care lest you forget. And in this interesting sort of turn, we have to, as people, be careful in the good times to remember the God who brought us there. But also for us as believers, we have to understand something, that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God. That you were enemies to God, that you hated God, but God. That there's none righteous, none who seek after God, none who seek the good, that we were all children of wrath, but God, in his great grace and his mercy, gave you more than you ever could deserve, more than you ever could earn, and he just lavished it on you. That is the grace of Jesus. God lavishes on us the grace of Jesus. And they are cisterns that, that never go dry. They're houses that never decay. They're vineyards that never produce bad fruit. These are the blessings that we have in Jesus. And so now, you believers, while you're reaping those blessings, as we await the ultimate land, don't forget. Be careful, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who brought you out of death and into life. Lest you forget, 1 Peter 2.9 tells us that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people of God's own possession, who are called by God to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do not forget this, that once you were not a people, but now you are a people, and once you had mercy, but now you, or once you did not have mercy, but now you do. Don't forget the gospel. Moving on. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Just for a second. Do not forget who God is. Do not forget who God is. He is a loving God, a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in mercy and love. And he has sent Jesus. And if you believe in faith into him, he will save you. But he is also a jealous, angry, wrathful God who condemns. And if we are reminding ourselves of the gospel, we can't forget that. Why? Because those two impossible things intersect at one place, at the cross. The love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God meet head to head with the wrath and the vengeance of a damning God on the cross. Our grace, Jesus' condemnation, Right there. We cannot forget it. Because when we forget it, we will stop fearing God. 
we will paint God in our own image, and that image will always, always mirror the gods of the culture around us. So Christians, be careful lest you become pagans in practice. Worshiping the gods of the culture. Worshiping money, worshiping self-reliance, worshiping sports, worshiping entertainers. Worshiping all of these things that are set before us. We live in, in the southeast. We live in the Bible Belt. And so we live with, in a culture that is highly inoculated to the gospel. We've heard it over and over again, and it, doesn't just, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't have the power that it should because we're, we've stopped preaching it. We've stopped preaching the gospel. We've watered it down to essentially do these good things and sort of assent to this truth that Jesus died on the cross, whatever that really means for you. Check off a box and you'll be okay. And so what happens is we have a lot of people who, even though they say they believe in Jesus and say they're Christians, they still live as though their actions save them. And you can see it because that translates into self-righteousness. And you know this is you when you look at someone else and you can judge them for your sin, but you're not broken by your own. And so you can judge the homosexual. You can judge the murderer. You can judge these people. But the pride in your heart, you can't see that. Brad has said this on numerous occasions and I love it. All it takes to be an effective legalist is to find someone who's a little bit worse than you. It's not the gospel. It's a false God. It's a false gospel given by a false God. And it's a blending. Look, the Lord our God is one. He's not blended with any culture, no matter if it's the best culture that the earth has to offer. It's not God. And when we blend it with God, we've created a false God. It's an idol, and it will kill you. So when you get here, to this place that God has called you. Remember to fear the Lord. He's a jealous God. He won't won't share his glory. He won't. So when you glory in false things, he will take it. He will chastise. He will discipline. Don't forget who God is. He's love and he's mercy, but he's fury and he's wrath and he's righteous and his holiness is over all of that. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you I'll stop there. I'm not going to stop too many more times, actually. Uh, but this, this wilderness at Massah, th- this comes up actually a few more times in Scripture. Uh, and one of them is Psalm 95, uh, which was up on the screen during 
the offering, but David is writing, but really the author of Hebrews tells us it's the Holy Spirit speaking. And he says, today, if you hear my voice, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts as they did at Massa in the valley when my wrath burned against them. That's not here, but it's in Psalm 95 and in Hebrews 5. When my wrath burned against them and I swore in my anger, they would not enter my rest. And so what has happened? God has done great things. He's 10 plagues, pillars of fire and smoke, split sea, manna from heaven, water from rocks, and the people are on the the precipice of the promise, and they want to turn back to slavery because the people over there are a little bit bigger than them. They fear, and so they want to turn back. Now, what's interesting is that in the book, in the letter to the Hebrews, that's what was going on there. The Hebrew, the, the, the Christians there were being persecuted. They feared, and so they said, well, let us turn back to Judaism because it's not against the state law, and we won't be persecuted, and we can still worship Jesus in Judaism or whatever, but we won't have to face these things. And the author of the letter says to them, look, if you turn back, it's like them turning back at Massah, and, and God will not let you enter his rest. You'll prove to, you will prove yourself to, to not be God's people, to have never been God's people. And so earlier we saw that we have to remember God in good times. Now we see we have to remember him in fear and turmoil and tribulation and not harden our hearts in unbelief, but remember and believe that Jesus who defeated the grave will defeat anything that stands. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. That's how that's supposed to be used, not the Ray Lewis way. Just saying. No weapon that's formed against us shall prosper. Why? Because our God, by the power of the Spirit, has defeated death. And if you believe in him, you are sealed in him. So remember. Remember the cross. Remember the resurrection of Jesus And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Look, this is just going to happen when you remember that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that God swore or that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised going on. When your son asks you in time to come, What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, this is amazing. Right? And and, and scripture commands us to be ready to give an account of the the hope that we have. Right? Uh, Paul tells Timothy, be instant in season be ready in season and out of season. Be ready. And Paul or God says the exact same thing. Look, you're going to get asked. Your son one day, your daughter, somebody is going to come up to you and ask, like, what is the meaning of all this? And then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt, against Pharaoh, and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. 
that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. And so when someone asks you, why it is you have hope? Or why do you deal with all these rules? Or why are you dealing with this faith that is so ancient and so obviously ridiculous? Or why is it that you believe these things? You can say to them that the Lord our God, while we were dead in sin, while we were lost and far away, he loved us. He sent Jesus to die to bring us back so that we might have the fullness of the blessing and the promise of God so that we might have inheritance in Christ Jesus. He saved us from the power of the grave. He is saving us from the power of sin in our lives and he will save us from the presence of death and the curse forevermore. He is good He is powerful. He is glorious. We are his. And so we love and obey him. That's what you say. That is the gospel. It is power. It is truth. And so some of you now are hearing this and saying, whoa, I've, I've not heard or I don't believe that. Today, if you hear the Lord or the voice of the Lord, don't harden your hearts. Don't turn back. Do not fear. God is bringing you out of fear. He's bringing you into promise. He's bringing you into freedom. Trust the Lord. And if you want to know what that looks like, talk to me. Talk to David. Talk to an elder. If you want to know more of what that looks like, come to Gospel 101. But right now, trust Jesus. And for those of you whose hearts are weary, for those of you who are in Christ, if your hearts are weary, if times are hard, or if your hearts are joyful and times are good, remember the Lord who brought you out of death and into life, out of darkness and into light, and has made you a people. Proclaim his excellencies today, this week, forevermore. And even now, as we we come to take a benevolence offering. This is a way that we proclaim the excellencies of God. God who brought us out of spiritual poverty and into richness at his own expense has called us who have to make ourselves poor for the sake of the other so that they might see the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you have an opportunity to do that now by giving to the benevolence fund. Um, This money, all of it, goes to people who are in need. And this is just one of the ways that we remember and communicate our remembrance of the gospel. So if you would, pray with me. And, and let me just reiterate that if this, is, if this gospel is just striking you as true for the first time, if you're just seeing Jesus and the glory and the beauty of the cross for the first time, please, I'll be out in the lobby. Come talk to me. I want to walk with you, talk with you through this. Uh, we love you very much. Let's pray. God, you are good. Just like you rescued your people from Egypt long ago, carried them through the wilderness, met their every need until they reached the land of promise, you have saved us from slavery to sin and death and hell. And you walk with us now, having the full power of the Spirit in us, conquering every obstacle, every giant, every enemy. We are safely in your grip. 
And we know as scripture promises us that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There's no thing in heaven or on earth or below of the angels or of man, of other people's doing or of our own that can separate your people from you. We love you in the name of Jesus. Amen.